Please be seated. Please pray with me. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, today is Palm Sunday, and we get to hear this great story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And before we talk about anything else, there's one thing that I'd like to get cleared up. It's often said that this story is a story that lifts up Jesus' humility, that this is a a story about the humble Jesus, the humble king coming into the city of Jerusalem. And I want to make it very clear from the beginning that that could not be farther from the case. And that it's difficult to understand the true import, the true impact of Palm Sunday without understanding what exactly is going on here. When Jesus is marching into, comes into uh, Jerusalem, he intentionally uh, has his disciples go and collect a donkey. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, it's both a colt and a donkey. It's actually two animals that he rides simultaneously. This is because Matthew misunderstands the nature of Hebrew, Hebrew poetic parallelism, but that's all right. If, if you notice, I put, I put two donkeys on the cover of the bulletin because I wanted to lift up Matthew and his one gospel with two donkeys. But put the image of the two donkeys out of your head and think of one donkey. Okay? As Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, this is something that comes straight out of the prophet Zechariah. Uh, The prophet Zechariah, again, said that the king, the Messiah, would come riding on a donkey. The prophet Zechariah also predicted that the day of the Lord would begin at the Mount of Olives. Jesus began his march into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. The symbolism of this act was not lost on anyone in the crowd. Jesus was trying to proclaim himself and take on the mantle of being the Messiah. It's a big deal. And the people on the side of the streets saw it just as that. Again, this is late Second Temple Judaism. This is a time when uh, there's a lot of turmoil within Palestine and people are awaiting the coming of a Messiah. And as Jesus comes into the city, people are indeed crying out, Hosanna, as in save us, deliver us, O son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They are proclaiming him as he marches into the city to be the next Davidic king. This is a very, very big deal. This is something that uh, people have been waiting for and anticipating. It is in fact just this, <clears throat> it's in fact just this march into Jerusalem and this claiming of, the, of, a, of a messianic title that Reza Aslan in his book Zealot uh, tries to lift up as a claim that Jesus was in fact um, a revolutionary leader. Now just as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, you have from the other side of Jerusalem Pontius Pilate arriving. The capital of Judea was not Jerusalem. But during Passover, this great festival, Pontius Pilate came with his soldiers from his capital to Jerusalem in order to keep the peace. You see, within Jerusalem, you had a population of roughly 40,000 people. And yet, during the festival of Passover, some 100,000 pilgrims would come for the festival. 
The city was literally bursting at the seams. People were staying wherever they could, and people were there filled with religious fervor. And in the midst of all of the people here, all the people there, in the midst of all the expectations about revolution and what could happen, all of a sudden you have a man riding in a donkey being proclaimed as a Davidic Messiah. What's going on here is the beginning of a great confrontation. Jesus is throwing down the gauntlet, riding into the city, and proclaiming himself as the Messiah. The very, next things he did, the very next thing he does, as Eric pointed out in his children's message, is to go into the temple and to clear out the money changers from the temple. Intentionally an antagonistic act to say, I am here and a new thing is coming. When I think of great confrontations, one thing that comes to mind is March 5th, 1775. That's where I get to dip into congregational history. (laughs) On March 5th, 1775, in the Old South Meeting House in Boston, it was a standing room only crowd. People were jammed in to hear an oration by Joseph Warren marking the fifth anniversary of the Boston Massacre. Now, this oration was not delivered in a vacuum. Far from it. Under a year and a half before, in that same Old South Meeting House, that great congregational space, in that same Old South Meeting House, Patriots of Boston had donned costumes of Native Americans and gone down to the harbor and tossed a whole bunch of tea off three different ships into into the waters of Boston Harbor. As a result, the British uh, passed what are known as the Intolerable Acts, shutting down the port of Boston, imposing military rule on Boston, replacing the royal governor with a military leader, Thomas Gage. The provincial assembly was dissolved. Uh, The judges, rather than being paid by uh, local communities, were now being paid by the king and the king's coffers. In response, the patriots in 1774 decided to set up an alternative shadow government. They had their own system of justice, their own provincial assembly that was illegally meeting. They started stockpiling arms. By the time you get to early 1775 in Boston where the soldiers are are present, it is like a powder keg right there. And Sam Adams and Joseph Warren and John Hancock and the other patriots, masters of propaganda, didn't want to let the anniversary of the Boston Massacre go unnoticed. And so they had this great oration, this great celebration planned in the Old South Meeting House. And Warren, and he got up to give his speech, uh, was dressed in a a toga, uh, invoking ancient Rome. They had draped the pulpit in black to mark the occasion. But they weren't there alone. As Adams and the others uh, crowded up front in the Old South Meeting House, they looked up to the balcony and saw a group of redcoats who had shown up. According to one account, these redcoats had shown up to arrest Adams, Hancock, and the others for sedition, perhaps even assassinate them on the spot. There was supposedly a signal that at the dropping of a handkerchief, they were supposed to rush to the front and snatch them away before anything else could happen. Adams paused the uh, proceedings before anything went forward and actually invited the redcoats down to sit in the front pew of Old South Meeting House. Again, this is jammed to the pack, people standing everywhere. And then Warren gets up and delivers this rousing oration talking about the horrors of the Boston Massacre. Warning the children there in the room that they should watch out as they walk on the pebbles of the streets of Boston lest they slip on the dried uh, guts that remained from that bloody day. 
Afterwards, Adams got up and denounced the bloody massacre. Bloody, of course, also being a, a swear word for the British. The British soldiers stood up and cheered, fie, fie. Of course, people heard fire instead. Panic erupted. People rushed for the exits. Another massacre in the beginning of the war was averted by just that much. But then a few weeks later, uh, Gage got his orders and went out to Lexington to try and arrest Hancock and Adams to do what he had failed to do uh, on that March 5th gathering. Great confrontations define history. They define great historical moments. Change comes usually through conflict. And in conflict, you often have great forces coming to bear against one another. Not just the American Revolution. You see the same thing in the American Civil War. A great confrontation that, began to def- that, that, def- that redefined America. You see that in the Civil Rights Movement. You see it in Birmingham and Selma. These great confrontations that are planned in order to move things forward in Stonewall. Confrontation after confrontation. But you know, as the disciples were following Jesus into Jerusalem, and as people were waving their palms and cheering, I could see a couple of them slurk back from the crowd. Maybe they lean into one another and start whispering, what is this going to mean? It's one thing to be a disciple of Jesus and follow him around and watch him do one miracle after another. It's an entirely different thing to be in league with him, marching on that path, as you know that there are Roman soldiers just on the other side of that wall waiting for you. The disciples start to realize that this action has real consequences because the reality is that confrontation does. And when those consequences sink in, oftentimes we shirk from it. We hide away from it. When I was in high school, I was a wrestler. Uh, And I have to say, there is... There are a few things more nerve-wracking than getting up on a wrestling match to face someone in a six-minute match. And there, are, there were many times where if there was a way I could have avoided those confrontations, I would have. Public shame is a good way to motivate people. But there are some times where I've shirked away from confrontation. I've not stood up. The time that sticks, sticks uh, foremost in my mind uh, is when I was an intern at Wapping Community Church. It's a story I've shared with some of you before, I know. When I was an intern at Wapping Community Church, my second year at Divinity School. And this was just the same time in Connecticut where Connecticut was debating uh, civil unions in their state legislature. And the senior minister sent out a survey to the congregation to see how the congregation felt about doing civil unions in that worship space in Wapping Community Church. And the results, the survey results that came back were hotly divided. Some people saying, I'll leave the church unless you allow this to happen. Others saying, I'll leave the church if you do allow this to happen. And so the senior minister saw a way out, and the way out ended up being me. (laughs) He suggested that for my third and final sermon as an intern, that I actually come out to the congregation. And so I prepared a sermon for that and wrote it up uh, and was getting ready to do it. And the last moment, I, I backed out. I wasn't in a place where I felt that I could do that. Uh, And I felt so horrible about that, because I remember that Sunday when I got up and preached something else entirely that I came up with in, uh, you know, just a few hours. (laughs) Uh, I looked up to the balcony, and there in the balcony of the church was, of course, the youth group that I'd worked with that entire year. 
It was a very large youth group. It was a big church. And I thought to myself, I know some people in that youth group are, are gay or lesbians. And, I, and, I, and I sh- if I had come out, it would have been such a great thing for them to see that affirmation. But I didn't. One of the greatest examples of uh, avoiding confrontation, of course, from history is the 1930s, where Britain and France uh, bent over backwards to appease Hitler. They knew what the consequences were of trying to confront him. They had lived through World War I. They knew this was serious business. And so, we, even though Hitler was a real threat and everybody knew it, the consequences were such that Neville Chamberlain uh, and his French counterparts wanted to avoid conflict, avoid confrontation. Of course, in the end, that only meant that it gave Hitler more time to build up his arsenal. It only meant that the confrontation, when it did happen, ended up being more bloody than it would have been if he had been stopped at the very beginning. So what is it that leads us to actually step forward in a time of great confrontation? What motivates those who lead those confrontations? It's not money. Look through history. The people who lead great movements are not, act, are not in it for the money. It's certainly not for comfort. Confrontation is anything but comfortable. It's usually a question of principle. Great confrontations happen over matters of principle. You know, there are those who claim that history and the movements of history are all about materialism. Certainly that was Karl Marx's view. Uh, but underlying uh, everything else are, are matters of principle. History moves, people act based on principle. And the people who are the leaders in confrontations are the ones who have clarity of purpose and principle, are able to boil things down and say, this is the essence of what it's about, and therefore I stand here and will not move. You see it in the American Revolution. One of the, one of the remarkable things about the American Revolution is that the American colonists had some of the highest standard of living and the, high, and, and, and the best life outcomes of any people in the world at the time. It was amazing to be an American colonist. You had a low tax rate. You had a thriving business environment. You had a lot of self-government. You had a low infant mortality rate. Again, to live in the American colonies around the time of the revolution was great, and yet a revolution started. Why? It was a matter of principle. The patriots said, if you can tax us without our representation then you can, in theory, take anything you want without our representation. And that's just tyranny, and I will not live under tyranny. And of course, the British are coming back saying, what do you mean, you've got everything you want, we're not asking for much. And they say, no, it's a matter of principle. And that's what led to the war. A few years ago, I was uh, working to host a big uh, climate conference uh, at Memorial Church at Harvard. And this was something that we, we, we had been asked to host, and we were glad to do it. And in the, in the course of preparing for this, I ran into a Harvard graduate student named Craig Altimos. And Craig was the first true environmental fanatic I'd ever seen, I'd ever actually come in, come in contact with. Uh, Craig was someone who, he said, listen, when I look at what's going on in the world, when I look at the potential negative consequences of what's going to happen, the single biggest threat facing us is climate change, period. Uh, if the consequences for climate change are even remotely what some people claim they will be, then this is the one thing that I have to focus on with my life. And so Craig decided he was going to devote his life to combating climate change. This was not something he did for 
uh, for money, because <laughs> you work in various nonprofits that are doing this, you barely make uh, any living at all. It certainly wasn't for any kind of fame or fortune. It was because he thought, if I'm going to be a moral human being, this is the one thing that I'm going to work for. And he has. You look at William Lloyd Garrison, and this is the guy who started the Liberator magazine in 1830 and is the leading voice behind abolition. When he started it, no one else was out there doing it. But when William Lloyd Garrison looked at the world at his time, he said, listen, slavery is an evil thing. It is the greatest evil facing our country, and I'm going to devote my life to battling it. It took him more than 10 years before other people even began to get on board with him. It took 20 years before it became a popular notion in the North to be an abolitionist. Even in 1860, 30 years later, the Republican candidate was not advocating abolition. 30 years. This is a long struggle. What keeps that struggle going? Principle. Moral clarity. You look at some of the great confrontations going on today in Texas. One thing that gets my blood up, as I'm sure it gets much, a lot of your blood up, is, the, is this whole bathroom bill nonsense, this SB6 bill. On one side, you have people who, who are just adamantly opposed to all kinds of LGBT rights. And they will lie, and they will make things up, and they will badger representatives. They will do whatever it takes to try and restrict the rights of LGBT people. They lost the gay marriage thing. They lost uh, other sort of rights issues. But they see transgender folks as good victims, and they're, going, and they're throwing the book at them, the same thing that they've done to other people in the past. It's a matter of principle for them. And for those who are standing up to them, it's also a matter of principle. The question is, where, what are our principles and what are we willing to stand up for? It's amazing in these great confrontations, somehow, sometimes it's difficult to get people to actually step up and make their voices heard. People want to slurk away from confrontation. They want to come up with other excuses. But it matters. Now, this is Holy Week. Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week. Holy Week, in addition to being a joyous time, hopefully with your families and eating lots of chocolate and having to deal with sugar highs of your children over the weekend, of Easter egg hunts, and hopefully of nice family dinners. Easter is one of my favorite holidays of the year. It's also a very serious and solemn occasion for us Christians. Because the issues that come up in the story of the Passion are serious issues. Uh, this week, coming uh, front, this, this, this week before us uh, lifts up to us the core of our faith. So one of the things I'd like to do uh, is encourage you to take this seriously and to make sure you come to Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday service. The Monday, Thursday service, where we will uh, relive and, and hear the story of the Last Supper, uh, is this Thursday at 7 the Good Friday service where we consider uh, Jesus' crucifixion is Friday at 7. I've always thought it's very difficult to, appreciation the tr- to appreciate the true power and joy of the resurrection without first having gone through uh, the betrayal on Monday, Thursday, and then the death on Good Friday. These are all important elements to the celebration of Easter, and I encourage you to be there. And as we're considering these deep issues this week, I also encourage you to think deeply about moral principle and moral clarity. This time of year, as much as any other, when Jesus is putting down uh, his life on behalf of his principles, what are the things that you care about most dearly? What are the things that matter most? 
when you have moral clarity, when you've thought through these issues, it gives you the strength and the courage to stand up when it is time for a confrontation. Our goal as Christians is not to be uh, the people necessarily cheering on the side of the road, although that's important. We're also called on to walk behind Jesus as he rides the donkey into the city. And we'll only have the courage to stay there and to walk that path if we've thought through what, those, what that ride into the city actually means, what consequences actually exist, and we know why we're doing it. So that when the soldiers come, we don't run away, but stand up for what we believe in. Confrontation is not easy, but confrontation is the way that the moral world moves forward. I hope you think about that deeply this week.